Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder among the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. I will say the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. And... This church on the corner of 16th and Holly is a reflection of your goodness for all the lives you've touched in this place, for how you have used it to reach out into the community. Lord, none of that would be, none of us would be standing here this morning if not for your resurrection. We are so grateful. Lord, I pray if there is anyone in this place this morning that doesn't know you, that you will draw them to you that they will hear only your words and that the Holy Spirit will call to them in ways they never imagined. Lord, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for what you do in our lives. Lord, as we go out into the world this week, may we carry the glow of your resurrection despite all of the darkness in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Tiffany. That um, transition from tears to Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples, that was a, that was a rough one. <laughs> you handled that one well. Um, Charlie has greeted you. Alec has greeted you. Tiffany has greeted you. Let me be at least the fourth in that line to greet you this morning. If you're new with us, my name is David. I have the incredible honor of getting to be the pastor here at the church at Lachlan Springs. If you are a covenant member of this church family, if you are a regular attender here with us, if we haven't seen you since last Easter, if you have never darkened the doors of this building before this morning, know that we are so grateful for your presence. We recognize this is the first beautiful day in a long string of ugly days. You could have been anywhere this morning and you woke up, you got ready, you left your house and you came to this place to worship with us and we do not take your attendance for granted. If you want to know more about us, if you want us to know more about you, there are QR codes everywhere. You can come find me. You can find Alec, find Charlie, find anybody. Let us know how we can come alongside you and let us know how we can love you well. It will be our great honor. When I was a kid growing up in church, Easter was unquestionably 
the biggest church day of the year. Like it was, it was a huge event that you looked forward to. There was something different in the air. You wore seersucker suits and pastel and big hats and you look forward to the solos in I've Just Seen Jesus, Larnell Harris. If you don't know that song, y'all, when you get in the car, look it up on Spotify and crank it up. You had to have the exact same two singers every single year because they were the only two in our church that could hit those high notes at the end. And you knew that morning before you came to church, they were going to do it. It was going to bring the house down. And then after we left, there was going to be this big, huge Easter brunch. It's something you started to look forward to early in the year. Those Easter Sundays were fantastic. But at least as far as I was concerned, they also kind of existed in a vacuum. Just one really cool, supercharged Sunday in a long string of just regular Sundays. Just kind of normal Sundays, like, like 4th of July and like Christmas and like Halloween and like Thanksgiving. Easter was something you anticipated and then it came and then it went and you went on with your life. Normally on Easter morning, we spend time in one of the Gospels. This morning, we aren't. We're spending time in Acts chapter 9. The story of the day that Saul met Jesus on that road to Damascus. There's no cross. There's no stone that was rolled away. There's no bow ties. There's no pastel. There's no Larnell Harris. There's not even an Easter ham at the end of it. But there is Jesus. And every time there is Jesus, there is Easter. We have spent the last few months walking through this book of Acts. It's the second part of kind of Luke's masterwork that started with the gospel of Luke where, where God, through the hand of Luke, told us of the life and times and, and ministry here on earth of Jesus Christ. And then Luke transitions in the book of Acts. And God, through the hand of Luke, tells us the story of the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church in the days and weeks and even months and years following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's truly the story of what happens when God's people are filled with God's spirit. Because of the way Luke is written, and certainly studying Luke the way we've done it these past couple of months, the timeline gets super compressed. You know, Luke chapter 1, you have Jesus and his last appearance, his last moments with his disciples. He kind of gives, gives them their marching orders. You're going to receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God, and then you're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. Peter preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 people come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. You go through this kind of quick-hitting cycle of persecution and prayer and preaching and growth and persecution and prayer and preaching and growth. As the church begins to grow and begins to experience some tensions and potential for division, you start to see the, the early church leaders throw in some, some infrastructure, making sure the resources are getting to the places that it needs to go. 
All of it makes it seem like this happened in a matter of weeks, maybe potentially months. The reality is, the timeline that passed from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 9, this passage that Tiffany read for us this morning, is at minimum four years. More than likely, it's five, six, maybe even seven years. There has been a lot of time for the gospel to take root. There's been a lot of time for the church to grow as we see these stories of Christ followers gathering together, gathering around the table, gathering in each other's homes, breaking bread, eating, praying, loving on one another, taking care of one another. That developed over a long period of time, and it was beautiful. Because of that persecution that we see, the cycle of persecution in those first chapters of Acts, people were also leaving Jerusalem and going throughout the known world and taking the seeds of the gospel with them. Now here in Acts chapter 9, we're first kind of formally introduced to this man named Saul. Saul was both a Jew and a Roman, therefore he had two names, Saul and Paul. He's most famously known as Paul. Here in Acts chapter 7, he is still known as Saul. I will try to refer to him as Saul all morning long, but if I interchange those names, just know we're talking about the same person. Saul was not only a Jew, but he was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. That was very important to him because the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that remained loyal to the line of David after the kingdom of Israel split. Saul was also a Pharisee, kind of the religious elite, those that had dedicated their lives to the study and teaching and practice of the Old Testament law. And not only was Paul a Pharisee, but he was, he was a Pharisee that sat under the teaching of Gamaliel, who was this incredible, famous, well-respected teacher, a long line of rabbinical excellence. Like Paul was a Jew of Jew and a Pharisee of Pharisees. We first see his name at the very end of Acts chapter 7, at the execution of one of the early church leaders, Stephen. Chapter 7 just mentions that Saul was there. The beginning of chapter 8, we see that not only was he there at the execution of Stephen, but he approved of it. Not only did he approve of it, he was seemingly inspired by it. And we see him at the beginning of chapter 8 described as beginning to ravage the church. Paul sees what happens to Stephen. He takes his, his background as a Pharisee. He recognizes these Jews that are coming to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And he begins going everywhere he can to persecute the church. Paul himself, in Acts 26, in Philippians 3, and several other places, describes the violence and rage with which he persecuted the church. And it was horrific. Like Saul was, Saul was going along and he would find people that self-identified as Christ followers and he would pull women and men out of their homes, out of the synagogues. He would have them arrested. He would send them back to Jerusalem to be put on trial. If there was a possibility of death, he would always vote for death. But you need to understand, Saul was doing this because he felt like he had no choice. 
as a deeply religious man, as a man that had spent his entire life studying the Old Testament law, teaching the Old Testament law, dedicating himself to that, he knew to be ready for the Messiah. He knew to be ever watchful for the chosen one that would be sent. And his understanding was this Messiah was going to be a conquering king. Finally, the Lord was going to send someone to save us, was going to send someone to lead Israel back to their prominence, back to their influence, back to their rightful place of power. Someone that would finally conquer and overthrow the Roman occupying forces that were there. The idea that there were Jews that were recognizing this man that came from a nowhere town in the backwaters of the Roman Empire who eventually was executed in the most excruciating and humiliating way. The the idea that there were Jews that recognized that man as the Messiah, that was an affront to everything he stood for. He felt it his duty to defend God's honor and to attack that untruth wherever he found it. And that's exactly what he does. At the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we see Saul on the road to Damascus to do just this. He had heard there were believers there. He he had heard there were Jews that were living there that were identifying Jesus as the Messiah. They were part of what he called the way, which by the way, if any of y'all like are a part of the global Christian PR firm, if there is one, going back to calling it the way, I would be for that. So just let me know. I've got some ideas. They're on a whiteboard upstairs. So he hears there are all these people following the way in Damascus, and he goes to the high priest so he can get a letter of authority to have these folks arrested. Damascus, probably 130, 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So it was a long journey. And somewhere on that journey, as Paul has his people coming with him, all of a sudden, He is overcome by a blinding light. And when I say blinding light, I'm using that term literally. The light so bright and so overwhelming, he lost his sight and was driven to his knees. When when Saul hits his knees, he suddenly hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a sentence, it's a question that is so rich. We could spend an entire sermon series just on that one line, but I want to focus on the first two words. The name that's said twice, Saul, Saul. It's something that we would kind of lose the significance of in our modern English vernacular. If we attribute any any significance to the fact that Jesus called his name twice, we might go back to, you know, us us Southerners that that when the kids are in trouble, you go first, middle, and last name. Like that's when, when your mom calls you by your whole name, you know you're in trouble. There is significance to Jesus saying, Saul, Saul. It does signify and indicate intense emotions, but those emotions are not anger. They're not frustration. It's intense 
intimacy. We see it throughout the scriptures. Abraham, Jacob, Moses in the burning bush. When God calls out to Moses from the burning bush, calls his name twice. Moses, Moses. Jesus himself. You remember his last words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in those moments, recognizing the intense intimacy of relationship. We also kind of see it from the flip side in Matthew chapter 7 as Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be with me in the kingdom of heaven. You can't fake this type of intimacy, Jesus is saying with that statement. You can't just call me by my name. You can't pretend to have intimate relationship with me. You can't just talk about it. You've got to be about it, the Lord says. But in that moment, this man that has been literally killing Christ followers all over the known world, Jesus shows up and calls him by his name indicates intense intimacy with him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul asks the question. And when I say the question, I mean the question. The most important question that any of us will ask. The question that all of us will ask. At some point in our life, in that moment, on his knees, surrounded by a blinding light, Paul asks the question, who are you, Lord? Can you imagine what he was processing in that moment? Now remember, remember who Saul is. Saul is a Jew of Jews. Saul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. Saul had spent his entire life studying the Torah, studying the law. Saul didn't need the answers. Saul had the answers. And then he recognizes the Holy Lord in front of him. And suddenly he has the stark realization I think I have all the answers, but I don't have the answer to the only question that matters. Who are you, Lord? The Lord is standing in front of me, and I have no idea who he is. Despite my education, despite my position, despite my authority, despite my zealousness in following the law, none of that matters. The Lord is standing here, and I have no idea who it is. Who are you, Lord? It's me, Jesus, the one you've been persecuting, the name you have spent your entire life trying to stamp out. And I'm here. You know, Paul would have been traveling with a huge group of people, and we see in this passage that the men he was traveling with, they recognized something was going on. They hear some noises, they can't make out what it is. 
They may see a light, certainly not to the intensity that Saul did, but they see suddenly this great man incapacitated on his knees. They do the only thing they know to do, and they assist him to go to the end of his journey, which is in Damascus. Now, meanwhile, while all of this is happening, there's a man in Damascus named Ananias. He's just a dude. He's not some prominent early church leader. He's not a rabbi. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a man that has a great deal of power. As a matter of fact, we don't know anything about Ananias prior to Acts chapter 9. We don't know anything about Ananias after Acts chapter 9. He's just a dude that knew Jesus and lived in Damascus. And he hears the word of the Lord. Ananias, go to this house, ask for a man named Saul from Tarsus and pray for him. He's waiting for you. Now, those of you that were with us last week, we were in Acts chapter 8, and it sounds very similar to the story that we talked about last week with Philip and this Ethiopian government official. Philip hears the word of the Lord, go south of Jerusalem to this road in the middle of nowhere, and you're going to find an Ethiopian man there. What we see in Acts chapter 8 is Philip gets up and he goes. Ananias, just the opposite. Go to this house, ask for Saul of Tarsus, he's waiting for you. God, that is a terrible idea. Do you have any idea who this man is, Lord? Like Saul from Tarsus, he's going around the world killing Christians. That's probably exactly why he's here. I don't know if you've noticed, God, but I'm a Christian. And you're sending me to him? The Lord says, Ananias, I've got it. I've got plans for this man. Just do as I asked. And he does. He goes to this home. He finds Saul. He greets him as a brother. He lays hands on him. He prays for him. Suddenly Saul's sight is restored. And it's in that moment, through that experience, Saul recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Saul goes literally from killing Christians to being Christianity's first and probably greatest missionary. Suddenly, everything makes sense. This is Saul's Kaiser Soze moment. This is Saul's big reveal at the end of the movie. This is the montage where you have all the tiny flashbacks. And suddenly everything you've seen before that you thought you knew what it meant, you recognize it means something completely different. It's a brand new picture and it's more beautiful than you ever could have imagined. Everything Saul had ever learned took on brand new meaning in that moment. It is history's most famous and perhaps most dramatic conversion story. But we can't truly understand the profundity of it without comparing it to Acts chapter 8. The, study we story, the, the story we studied last week, Philip and the Ethiopian, these two stories, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Ananias and Saul, 
They follow the exact same pattern. Yet every element is turned upside down. Last week, we saw a foreigner that despite his wealth and despite his position was still a religious outsider. Searching, desperately seeking answers, trying to determine who is this person that that the prophet Isaiah was talking about and yet excluded from the temple either because of decisions he made or things that were done to him. Marginalized on the outside, looking in. And the Lord sent an established church leader to a road in the middle of nowhere. And through that encounter, this Ethiopian court official met Jesus as the Messiah. Acts chapter 9. Saul is just the opposite. Saul's not a foreigner. Saul's not excluded. Saul's not a religious outsider. He's religiously elite. He's powerful. He's influential. He's prideful. He wasn't searching for answers because he had all of the answers. The Lord didn't send to him some prominent church leader. The Lord sent sent to him just a dude. Just a guy in the middle of this bustling city center. And in that encounter, Saul finally recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Two parallel stories back to back with so many differences. What's the only common thread? Jesus showed up. You see, the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch wasn't about Philip. It wasn't even about the Ethiopian. It was about Jesus. Saul's conversion that is so dramatic and so powerful that it's become a common phrase in modern English vernacular, this Damascus Road experience. It wasn't about Saul. It wasn't about Ananias. It was about Jesus. Normally on Easter, we paint the picture of the cross, that brutal Friday, the railroad ties driven through wrists, driven through ankles. And then we get to the glory of that empty tomb, that stone that was rolled away. That morning at that empty tomb, it was the women, they were the first to show up. They discover that his body isn't there, so they run back and they tell the guys. The guys go back to verify the story. You're right, the body isn't there. And they all kind of scatter over the next few hours. Jesus shows up, appearing first to Mary Magdalene. Then to the rest of the women in a a different location. Then to Peter and to John and to Cleopas in a different location. Finally to all of the gathered disciples in that upper room. They were all in different places both physically and emotionally and spiritually. The one common thread in every one of those stories is not one person expected 
to meet a living Jesus that day. And yet, there he was. Every time Jesus showed up, they didn't find him. He wasn't lost. They didn't discover him. He wasn't hidden. The story of Easter is the empty tomb. The gospel is this. Every person in this room, every person that's watching us online, every person you have ever seen on the sidewalk, every person living in these homes around us, every person at your work, every person in line at the DMV, every person that has ever existed, regardless of who they are, of what they've done, of how they identify, of how they vote, every single one was intentionally and uniquely created by the God of the universe and bears his imprint, reflects his glory into the world. All of us image bearers. But because our imperfection couldn't exist with his perfection, there was a gap. There was nothing that we could do to get there where there was no way God made a way. And he made that way through Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% divine. Who willingly allowed those nails to go through his wrists, to go through his ankles. Who willingly died the most embarrassing and excruciating of deaths so that that gap could be bridged so that we could be with our creator forever but the gospel is not simply that he died the gospel is on that third day, on that Sunday, on that first Easter that he rose again. It's what every single one of those women and men, those disciples discovered that day. And it's also what Saul discovered on the road to Damascus. You see, Saul's conversion was not about going from Jesus doesn't exist to he does exist. No, Saul knew good and well who Jesus was, there's a decent chance Saul, as a good Jew, was there at the Passover when Jesus died. Saul's conversion was going from Jesus is dead to Jesus is alive. Recognizing Jesus Christ as the Messiah, recognizing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior is not merely an intellectual assent to a set of ideas. Nor is it an emotional decision made because the music is so good. It is understanding there is life from death. It is understanding that there is a living Savior that walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago, that showed up on a road in the middle of Syria six years later, and that is alive in your life today. 
It's new identity. It's new hope. It's new life. The last couple of weeks, y'all have been brutal. I don't know if I have tears left to cry. But the story of Easter tells me death doesn't win. And if you don't know that living Savior today, I'm begging you, come find me. Find my wife, find Alec, find Charlie, find the person next to you, find anybody. Because he's here and he's fantastic and he loves you so much. As Charlie comes back up to continue to lead us in worship this morning, would you please pray with me? Lord, here's my confession. I love to put on a bow tie once a year. I love to eat a big Easter meal. I love Larnell Harris. Strip all of that away from me and remind me you are not alive one day a year. You're alive every day. And remind me that in you, I also have new life. There's nothing that we can do to earn your grace. There's nothing that we can do to disqualify ourselves from it. All we can do is ask the question, who are you, Lord? And let you speak into our lives. May you do that this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.